Good morning, everyone. Make sure I'm lined up here with the and the camera. There is nothing sweeter than to taste your word of grace. To gain a knowledge of your word is to see the Savior's face. To read about who you are has brought me so much joy. There is nothing sweeter than to each day to understand the word of truth is to find the words to pray to search and know the will of God is through the word of life oh your words my daily bread Living my word by all that you have said. Oh, your words, my guide and light. It teaches me what's wrong and what is right. There is nothing sweeter than your word that's tried and true. It reveals the future things and all that you will do To look into the mind of Christ Has made my life complete Oh, your words incomparable Doing what men think is impossible Oh Your word's omnipotent It's saving souls And so magnificent There is nothing sweeter than your word that is so pure Heaven and earth will pass away but your word it will endure forever I will praise your word for all he has done there is nothing sweeter than your word there is nothing sweeter Capo up here. All right. When I've lost all hope, 
Yes, I am loved. Oh, I am loved. In my darkest hours, when I feel that I've been abandoned and abused and accused, I think back to the cross. Then I Willing to suffer for me Yes, I am loved Oh, I am loved I tell you one and all When you're feeling so very lonely You could cry You could die Just think back of God You are loved by a God who is willing to suffer willing to suffer for you Yes we are loved Oh we are loved We are loved Oh yeah We are loved Guitar, but right back. All right, my children, I have returned. And uh, good morning again to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? Today, we're wrapping up our study of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, before we move on to chapter 3, and remember, uh, we have, uh, I should have posted this earlier, but we have uh, some things uh, going on um, as far as announcements. As you can see on the board, we uh, there'll be no Bible classes uh, I'll put this up. I'll blow this a little bigger. 
There'll be no Bible classes for Winston Bible Ministries uh, on Saturday, February 24th, Tuesday, February 27th, Thursday, February 29th, Saturday, March 2nd, Tuesday, March 5th, Thursday, March 7th, and Saturday, March 9th. And in other words, I can make it easier for you. Today's our last class, class before a three-week break. We resume classes uh, Tuesday, March 12th. And uh, so I'm just taking a break off from teaching from Winston Bible Ministries. And the reason I do that is because I actually, I probably, t I, I know I teach more than anybody else in the country or, or the world probably. Uh, I teach six times a week. I teach three times at Winston Bible Ministries, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and uh, uh, Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time for Winston Bible Ministries. And then I'm over at DBC, Doctoral Bible Church here in Huntsville, Alabama, where I'm broadcasting. That's why I'm down in Huntsville now and have been for over a year and a half. And I teach uh, on Saturday, Friday, uh, I get it all straight. On Wednesday evenings, last night I taught, and we're doing the Day of the Lord series. And then on Sundays, I do two sessions with a break in between. We start at 9.30 on Sunday morning. So I'm doing Habakkuk right now, and I'll be finishing that off and starting First Thessalonians uh, March 10th, on Sunday, March 10th. So that's six times a week. So the, the difficult part is not the teaching, but uh, actually it's really preparing the classes. So uh, right now I um, I do once I'm I'm preparing one study I'm working actively on a, a new study this is Ephesians this is what I'm doing here with you eventually I'll teach that to Doctrine of Bible Church but uh, like Habakkuk and Day of the Lord series and First Thessalonians we're going to be doing over at Doctrine of Bible Church I've taught on those already so I have I prepared those books and the and the studies from the uh, I had the study everything the lessons prepared for the for for them already because I've done it in the past so it's actually a lot of fun doing it a second time around I, I I'm glad that I'm able to do that I never thought I would ever do that once I do a book I figure I'm never going to do it again but with Doctrine Bible Church uh, I get to do the book a second time which is great because uh, it's it's a little bit easy it's better but uh, it's uh, I think I do a better job the second time around teaching it you know tell you the truth so uh, anyways uh, so they benefit from that but. Um, we're going to uh, wrap up our study of Ephesians chapter 2. So today's our last class before a three-week break. We'll resume classes on Tuesday, March 12th. And the reason why I'm doing that is I just give myself a break from teaching and the schedule. And I'm able to, what I want to do on the break, I'll be working. I always work on, on vacation anyways. But um, I, I, what I do, I like to try, I'm trying to finish off a collection of 14 songs that I've started. I've got, I've got three done. i got one I really want to get through the lyrics and the melody for. So I'm hoping to do that. And also, I write a lot. Of, I write a lot, and uh, so we have over seventeen hundred articles that I've written library, and over seven hundred on our academia edu website. So most people, a lot. Of, it's interesting. Most people around the world know me as a writer. <laughs> it's pretty funny, and because uh, of the stuff I got out there, and uh, so um, I do a lot of writing. I'm always updating my stuff, and uh, and um, my doctrines and the different exegesis and exposition of the different books of the Bible. So I'm I'm always. I'm always doing something with regards to that. And then there's a lot of reading and a lot of different areas. Like people are, <laughs> I was telling them, so what do you read? I, I read like, I'm, I'm, you probably think I'm crazy, but I've been doing this for years. I, I read like about at least 10 different things at once. I take a little, you know, that's what I, people say, how you do it? Well, it's like, yeah, uh, each day I, I'll, I'll, I'll like, I'll have uh, the, the different areas of related to what I do in my work and also devotional stuff. But mainly, you know, I'm always reading stuff on the original languages um, and also different areas of theology, bibliology, um, and then, you know, doing stuff like that. And so I'm always, I'm always reading on something. Okay. I, I very rarely do. I, I do write, uh, read stuff for just enjoyment. You know, there's that, that obviously, but you know, so I have a pretty, pretty busy schedule. So, um, it's it, taking a three week break off from, uh, you know, every couple of months doing that is what I'm going to be doing. And that, uh, it, that it, it, it recharges you and stuff. So, you can get uh, take things for granted, and you get a little bit um, stale. So, 
you know, that's uh, so I'm going to be uh, uh, doing that stuff. And the weather's supposed to be great. It's supposed to be beautiful weather next week. I might even play some golf. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 I love that South, baby. And, uh, you know, the weather down here is great. So I, so I like to make, maybe I'll play a little golf when I'm on my vacation, you know. So a lot of guys think, uh, you know, you know, you say, well, you should take a vacation and you're going to get burnt out. I, say, I don't get burnt out. I'll tell you the truth. I love what I do. I kind of tell people before, see, this guys are saying that is because, this is true. I'm, I'm very, I don't think I'm unusual. There's other guys like me, but when I, when I got out of, you know, high school and I did a year of college because I wanted to do my music and then, you know, a lot of guys, they, they get into ministry right after the college, high school, then go to the college and then they go into seminary. I didn't do that. I, I, I wanted to go to seminary in my twenties, but uh, it didn't work out. I ended up in a ministry, you know, working, you know, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the guy taught and Sunday mornings and Sunday evening. So I was doing the prep school for him for years. So I was, I was, I was like a, a second job. I was always working. And, uh, so I was, you know, so it was, and, uh, so I was, uh, you know, so I was always busy in ministry. I never got a chance to go seminary or anything like that. So, um, but anyways, you know, so that my, my knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, that's just from, you know, over the years, you know, learning that stuff, you know, your, your vocabulary, your paradigms and all that stuff. And anyway, so it just, it, um, so that, you know, I, 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 so to me, when I got to be able to do this full time, when I started my first church plant in 2001, uh, August of 2001, when I went to Iowa and left Massachusetts, um, that was like, whoa, I get to do this full time. This is my job. So to me, even even though I went through some trials and tribulations in Iowa, and I did quite a few in Massachusetts, I, I I wouldn't trade it in the world for anything. You know, just just the fact that you can be be alone with the Lord, study, teach, and, and praying, you know, devoted to that uh, during the whole course of your day, and I, I just it's unbelievable. So it's it's been a great blessing. So to me, yeah, I don't when I when I when I had vacation time, when I was not in my own church plant and I was, you know, doing a job, pulling a job and then working at that church I was ordained in. Um, you know, when I took a vacation time, guess what I was doing? I was working, I remember working on Philippians, which is the first book I actually did a detailed exegesis and exposition of. And uh, so I, I, I worked on that time because I, I enjoyed it so much. I, I love everything aspect about it. So, you know, so that, you know, I, yeah, I look, do I like to play golf? Yeah, I like to, I like, I take a walk. I do, I try to keep active, physical activity, do some yoga. One thing, I go through spirits. I go do some yoga and then I don't do walk and I have a, I ride bike. So I don't, but I don't, you know, it's, I try to have some kind of physical activity. So when you study, you've got to do that. Otherwise you're going to get, you're going to get all kinds of physical problems. And anyways, so that's, you know, that's why I'm, I'm taking this break. And so anyways, um, and then you don't have, you can look at if you, you know, I remember somebody one time when I took a vacation, oh, what are they Make, the guy was complaining, he was a complainer anyways. I go, just go to the website. You, I got a plethora of stuff you can study while I'm away. Big deal. You couldn't catch up to it anyway. Some of these guys, like, I mean, over 1,700 written articles, there's plenty of stuff to read. Look at all the stuff that uh, over the years that is on the website. We don't delete because of the genius of Titus Thompson, who runs our website. Uh, all the recordings I've ever done, recording everything I've ever done is on our website, video and audio. We don't delete stuff. <laughs> I don't know many ministries that don't delete that stuff because Titus has, is a smart guy. And uh, so that's great. I love that. So you're looking for something to do in the next couple of weeks and I'm not around? Guess what? Go to the website. <laughs> There's plenty there. All right.
Let's go to it. Let's get to it. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And people, we may not maintain our fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which we, He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying those commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. And if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you, please do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. All right? So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation you're working on behalf of eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. And we pray that the Spirit would do a, a mighty work to all of us in the audience and those that, and myself as the teacher. And I pray, Father, that each person will be spoken to as an individual and all of us as a corporate unit by the Spirit, help them to learn and apply what they're being taught to concentrate and break, break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. Empower me to deliver your full counsel today as we wrap up our study of Ephesians chapter 2 and in particular verse 22 of that chapter. Help me to do so with, uh, with reverence, respect, and power, being humble and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I pray, Father, that if there's any people in the audience that are not yet a Christian, I thank you for them and I pray that they would get the gospel so that they can make a decision to either accept or reject your Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. And we know that they de you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. I pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio. Upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you're given to us. I pray you use them mightily and protect them from the evil one. Thank you for doing so up to this present moment. And uh, I also pray, Father, there be no problems with the streaming video by YouTube. But thank you for the service that they provide and protect it from the enemy. And thank you for those taking advantage of it. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're wrapping up our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, and thus the chapter itself, by noting today the means by which church-age believers are being built together into God's dwelling place, and this will constitute our 130th hour in this epistle. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read from the Net Bible, and uh, then we'll read my, my translation of this uh, chapter, and before we wrap up our study uh, of uh, chapter 2, verse 22, and, the, and thus chapter 2 itself. So it says in, old, in verse uh, 1, chapter, Ephesians 2, 1, I'm reading from the Net Bible, And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the rule of the kingdom of the year, the rule of the Spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives, and the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him, and seated us with him, 
in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who's made both groups into one and destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace and to reconcile them both in one body to God through his cross by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, before we read chapter 2 of my translation of Ephesians, uh, again, by quickly by way of review for those who might be new to this study, and this is a good reminder and refresher for those who have been faithful. Uh, Paul wrote this from his during his first Roman imprisonment, uh, which was between 60 and 62 AD. He was eventually released from it. He had his own rented quarters, but he was chained to a Roman soldier and he could receive people. That's according to Acts chapter 28. The recipients of this letter, as we pointed out, uh, are, are the not just the Ephesian Christian community, but also the various Christian communities uh, throughout the various cities and uh, towns in the Roman province of Asia. It was a circular letter, and this is indicated by the fact that in the oldest and best manuscripts in Ephesians 1.1, the word Ephesus does not appear. It's in the manuscript tradition, but it's not in the oldest and best manuscripts. Plus, you couple that with the fact that there's no personal greetings uh, in this letter, which we would expect since Paul used Ephesus as his home base from, according to Acts 18, 19, and 20 for three years. So it's, that's a couple of those two things together. It's, I believe this is a circular letter. In fact, uh, I believe that uh, Paul references the letter to the Laodiceans at the end of Colossians chapter 4, a book we studied in detail. That's a, I believe that, and many scholars believe that, and Bible teachers, that that's actually what we would call today uh, Ephesians. And the, that's supported by the fact that a heretic named Martian Back in the early in the uh, in the first second third century, uh, he saw the contents of what we call Ephesians, and he said it was addressed to the Laodiceans. So, uh, so therefore, you put all that together. This is a circular letter, I believe. The purpose of this letter is to maintain unity experientially between uh, members of the Christian community, in particular between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. And so, we've been talking about the contrast right now in Ephesians two eleven through twenty two. 
the contrast that was between the Jew and Gentile races. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And as Paul says, with the hostility in the, in the wall, uh, that's the Mosaic law, which served as a, a cause of hostility between both races. One reason why is because the dietary regulations. It prohibited uh, the Jews from engaging in uh, partaking of food that was a part of the worship of the false gods of the Canaanites or the Gentiles. And so therefore, they, they wouldn't enter into, into a Gentile's home because of that. And we saw that, clear, a great example of that is Peter in Acts chapter 10. God had to tell him three times of the vision that he'd eat all foods and thus he could go into a Gentile's home. The other reason is the Jews got arrogant, as many Jews, majority of Jews in Paul's day, got arrogant about the fact that they were the recipients of the law and the Gentiles were not, thinking that they merited it and God liked them better. And they were wrong. So those are the two reasons why there's hostility caused by the law with the two races. And also the two races, there was hostility between the two races in God because uh, no one could keep the law perfectly, which he required. He's a holy God. And of course, that's why he had to send his son to the cross uh, to uh, live a life of perfect obedience to the law that we couldn't do and also suffer the consequences, namely the wrath of God, because we couldn't keep the law perfectly. And uh, in order to have a relationship and a fellowship with God, you'd have to keep the law perfectly, and no one can do that because we're sinners by nature and practice because of the imputation of Adam's sin and the function of human volition, where our volition, our wills, our uh, volitions are enslaved to sin and Satan in this cosmic system. But through faith in Jesus Christ, that has been broken. And so now we're slaves to God in a positional sense, in a perfective sense, and now we need to experience that by appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature, the cosmic system of Satan, and alive to God. So uh, let's look at, uh, let's now start, let's start at, uh, and by the way, that ma unity ma maintained experientially between the members of the Christian community, Jew and Gentile, uh, the two wings of, of, of the church, uh, is going to be maintained through the practice of the command to love one another. And we'll be talking about this in the last three chapters, which are the imperatives of this book, the indicatives are in the first three chapters. In other words, Chapters 4, 5, and 6 give us the application of the first three verses. So these people that Paul's writing to are also Gentiles, as we pointed out. We saw that in, in Ephesians 2.11. So he's writing to them, and he is a Jew himself, a regenerate Jew. And so uh, throughout this letter, up to this point in this letter, with the first person plurals and the second person plurals, he vacillates between the two. And the reason why he's doing that uh, is because he's trying to show his solidarity and uh, with these Jew, uh, Gentile Christians, Gentile church age believers. And so he's made, trying to ex, uh, promote unity and solidarity between the two wings of the church. And so this is very, very important that we understand this about the letter. So let's get cracking. Let's go look at my translation of chapter two now. It says now, and by the way, my, my translation is a little more interpretive. All translation is interpretive. Any translator will tell you that. It doesn't matter which language you're trying to uh, uh, turn, uh, uh, you know, translate from. Uh, what we send into another language. It's uh, so I use a lot of. Uh, I bring out things like, for instance, the perp, uh, you'll see the uh, prepositional phrases in Ephesians: in Christ, in Him, in Christ Jesus, in the Beloved. Those when those prepositional phrases, not all the time, but pretty much all the time. In Ephesians, they speak. It's, they have. The, they contain the figure of autonomy, meaning the person of Christ, is put for our faith in Him at justification, and our union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit, which took place at our justification. So when you see that, I bring that out in my translation, where the modern translations and they're right to do so, just say in Christ, in Christ Jesus, and they leave up to your interpreter, your pastor, to explain that to you. So what Paul's using again is is what we would call, um, he, he, we would call that. Uh, um, 
uh, what's it called? Uh, shorthand. He's using shorthand. So let's go. Let's look at uh, chapter two and my translation. Now, correspondingly, uh, it says, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who were characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So, as we've been bringing out, that's a description of the pre-conversion, pre-justification, unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. And this is true of us, too, who are believers in the church age. So then we have a contrast with that pre-conversion, pre-justification, unregenerate state with, in verses 4 through 10. And, uh, and Paul goes in verse 4, he says, But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us, both Jew and Gentile church age believers, as a corporate unit, were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he, the Father, caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ. There's the figure of autonomy. And so then he says in verse 7, he did this, the Father did this, so he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the millennial reign and the new heavens and the new earth, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us. Why? Again, the figure of autonomy and the causal uh, idea is involved in this preposition in Christo Jesu because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Uh, this was done. Verse 8, each and every one of you is a corporate unit to say because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. Each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Then the therefore in verse 11 saying is now saying that what I'm about to say is an inference from the first 10 verses of the chapter. So then it goes on to say, therefore, each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision, the Jews, with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship, 
Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a a covenant expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic system of Satan. So like verses 1 through 3, verse 12 is describing the pre-conversion, unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. And he says that they they were not in a covenant relationship with God. They did not receive the privileges that the Jewish race did. Uh, Paul talks about them in Romans 3. They had the, they were given the scriptures. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. The tabernacle worship, the temple worship was given to them. The, the, the progenitors of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus, the, the Messiah, would be a Jew. And we also see that they were the beneficiaries of the four unconditional covenants that were given to their forefathers, the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. And the Gentiles were not. And uh, then, like verses 4 through 10 present a contrast with verses 1 through 3, we see that verses 13 through 22 present a contrast with verse 12. And so then it says in verse uh, 13, However, because of our faith in and our union identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you as a corporate unit who are formerly far away have now been brought near by means of of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall, that's the law, which served as the barrier, that is that which caused hostility, and that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity. How did he do this? Here's the means. Again, by means of faith in himself and justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Thus, he caused peace to be established, and that's between the two races interacting with each other and the the two with God. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, in other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to, to the Father through his cross, consequently, he put to death the hostility, and that's again between the two races with each other and the two races with God, he did this by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Then he says in verse 17, correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us, both Jew and Gentile church age believers, as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of province, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each of you by the apostles as well as the prophets, New Testament prophets, simultaneously, He himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. Then he says in verses 21 and 22, on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you, without exception, are being built together with the Jew, Jewish wing of the church and a God's dwelling place. How? 
by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So as we pointed out in our last class, Ephesians 2.22 is actually an epexegetical statement. In the Greek text, it's kai humais, so in oiko domesta, eis katoikaterion to theo, which I translate, in other words, all of you without exception of being built together into God's dwelling place. The Net Bible, they render this verse, you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God. Now, we also pointed out that this epexegetical statement is modified by two prepositional phrases which serve as bookends for this epexegetical statement. When I mean bookends, there's one at the very beginning, fronted, and then there's one at the very end. And ho is one of them, and panumity is the other. And so we see here, if you look at my notes on the board, the first prepositional phrase, which I just pointed out to you, uh, and ho, I translate it by, faith, by appropriating by faith, union and identification with him. This fronts this epigenetical clause. It's in the emphatic position. And then we see that en penumity, which I translate by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit, completes this epigenetical statement. So if you look at the net Bible, it says in whom. That's a correct translation. The problem is, that what does that mean? Well, that's up to the interpreter, your translator, or your interpreter, your teacher, to tell you what that's signifying. It's shorthand. In other words, it's how did this? How do we Gentiles in the church get to be united with the Jewish Gentile believers to, to, to together to form a dwelling place of God? It was through our faith in Jesus at justification and our identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit, which took place at our justification. That's how. Okay, and then then we see that the, la the prepositional phrase and uh, in the Spirit, okay? That's talking about the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit being appropriated. As you see in my translation, I say, in other words, by appropriating by faith your union identification with Him, all of you, without exception of being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. Now, this is awesome. Listen to me. That when we, remember Romans chapter 6, Colossians 2 and 3, uh, two big chapters on our union identification with Christ. And there are others, okay? But uh, our, in Ephesians chapter 2 is we're raised in sea with Christ, okay? When we, How do we appropriate by faith our union identification with Christ? First of all, what's our union identification with Christ? Well, through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification, our conversion, the Father placed us in union with Christ and identified us with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father. Why? Because we're under His headship now. He's the last Adam. And also, we're members of his body, and also we're the future bride of Christ. But also, we're in, we need to understand that uh, those events in Jesus' life provided us our so great salvation and sanctification. In other words, our eternal relationship with the triune God. So, what, what happens is, is that positionally, we're united to God and Jesus, and, uh, and also Jewish church, Jewish church age believers. In a positional sense, we are at our justification. And in a perfective sense, we will be in a resurrection body. But in the meantime, to experience that identification, that union and unity between the Godhead and other Jewish, uh, belie Jewish believers, we must appropriate by faith that union and identification with Christ. And Paul says in Romans 6, 11, and 12, you consider, in Colossians 3, 4, and 5, he says, consider yourself dead of the sin nature and also the cosmic system of Satan. And alive to God. And, and Why? Because you crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. So that's important. So that's, that when you do that, see, that's the teaching of the Spirit. Okay? In the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, and you see it in, in, Romans, in, in Romans chapter, the first six chapters of, Romans, of the book of Romans, and you see 
Colossians uh, 2 and 3. It's the, so that's what the Spirit tells us we are, who we are in Christ. That's the reality. That's truth. Now, we need to, to appropriate it that when we do appropriate it by faith and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God and dead to the cosmic system and alive to God and raised in seed with Christ, uh, we're appropriating the omnipotence of God because it's the, the Word of God is alive in power and the Spirit has inspired the Scriptures and He inspired the Gospel. Okay? He's the, so he's the divine author there, okay? So very important. So this is cool. So we have the power to experience victory over sin and Satan's cosmic system and unity with each other in the Christian community. It's a case of faith, and faith produces obedience. Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed God. So when we have faith in God's word, we'll obey the various commands and prohibitions of Scripture, and we're going to be appropriating, taking possession of the power that is going to give us the ability to experience unity with each other and victory over sin and Satan and his cosmic system. So we see here, as we get back to my notes here, that just as Paul employed the prepositional phrases and ho, which I translate again by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, just as he employed that prepositional phrase and and curio by appropriating by faith union identification with the Lord and Ephesians 2.21, to serve as bookends for his assertion and that verse. So he does the same here with these two prepositional phrases that I just pointed out to you here in Ephesians 2.22. Now the two prepositional phrases in Ephesians 2.21, we we pointed out in our study of Ephesians 2.21, serve to emphasize that the members of the Christian community are growing experientially into a holy temple. How? Well, by means of fellowship with the Lord, because or on the basis of the fact that they're being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with Jesus Christ. Thus, they ultimately serve to emphasize, in verse 21, the spiritual principle that the church-age believer, their fellowship with the Lord, is based upon their union and identification with Him. It's our union and identification with Christ that our justification by faith are the basis for the fact that we have fellowship with God. And how did that happen? It's all because of Jesus. He's the intermediary between a holy God and our sinners. You can't come into the presence of God without a sacrifice, and our sacrifice is Jesus. All right? So without the latter, again, there would be no former. There could be no former. Now, in this, here in verse 22, in the same manner, the prepositional phrases, and ho, and and penumity, uh, here in Ephesians 2.22, serve to emphasize Paul's assertion in this verse, the apexegetical statement which is explaining the statement in verse 21. Thus they serve, these two prepositional phrases that bookend verse 22, they serve to emphasize that Gentile church-age believers are being built together into a dwelling place of God by appropriating by faith their union and identification with the Lord, which appropriates the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. So therefore we can say that these prepositional phrases that we see in that bookend the statements in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter are actually parallel each other. For instance, in Ephesians 2.21, the prepositional phrase is and ho, uh, par- parallels the prepositional phrase and ho uh, in verse 22. Okay, This is clearly indicated by the fact that both are speaking of appropriating by faith through union identification with Jesus Christ. And then the prepositional phrase and curio in verse 21 parallels the prepositional phrase and penumity. And Ephesians 2.22. How do we know this? Well, it's clearly indicated by the fact that both also speak of appropriating by faith the, the one's union and identification with Jesus Christ, which again appropriates the omnipotence of the Spirit 
which in turn enables the church-age believer to grow up spiritually into the image of Christ. So these parallel expressions people serve to emphasize with us, us uh, who are Paul's readers, that the members of the body of Christ, you and I, and particularly both Jew and Gentile Christian communities, which compose the body of Christ, are inextricably tied to each other. How? By means of their union and identification with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. And not only this, it also emphasizes that their growth spiritually as individuals and as a corporate unit is inextricably tied to appropriating by faith this union identification with Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the expression uh, that we see in Ephesians 2.21, ho, pasa, oikoidome, which is translated the whole building, and the phrase naon, hagion, holy temple, in verse 21, actually parallels the expression katoikaterion, tutheo, which is translated God's dwelling place, in Ephesians 2.22. This is indicated by the fact that the referent of each of these metaphors is you and I, Gentile church-age believers. Each of these parallel parallel metaphorical expressions, we could say, serve to emphasize with Paul's Gentile readers, and you and I who are Gentiles, that we are not second-class citizens in relation to the Jewish Christian community. Why? Because both together form the church, which is the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. So I said, I left off with this last last class. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, okay, let's take Israel. You know, Israel was near to God. They had a covenant relationship with God. Gentiles weren't. Yeah, you could have proselytes. And prior to the giving of law, prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel, people like Noah and his family were saved. But, uh, you know, so, but here in the church, when you get, you compare us to what was going on in the Old Testament dispensations in the law, in particular, the age of Israel in the law, Gentiles were second-class citizens. Even if you join God's covenant people like Rahab, like um, uh, we see Rahab, we see uh, there's other people in the Old Testament that were um, Rahab the harlot. And she, she joined the nation of Israel. She's not a Jew, okay? Ruth is another classic example but they joined God's covenant people, but they didn't, they weren't, they weren't really, they were really kind of second class citizens. And uh, so what's interesting in the church age, though, uh, is that us Gentile believers have the same privileges and, 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 and responsibilities as Jewish church age believers. We're, we're identical. The only difference between us is that is our race. And so th- this is incredible. So it also, you can go a little step further. Women in the church age, you should be so thankful because, you know, you're a royal priest. Everybody who's a believer in the church age, uh, whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, you have, you're on equal footing with each other and you're a royal priest, meaning you represent yourself before God. So that's very, very important because women didn't have that kind of responsibility or that privilege in the Old Testament Israel. Only the Levitical, Levitical uh, Trevor Levi the men in that tribe, up to the age of 50, could serve as priests, okay? Nobody else could. So we have a royal, a universal royal priesthood in the church age. So you couldn't ask for a greater dispensation if you're a Gentile to live in. And so we're so blessed, and so this should cause us to thank God and worship God. Think about these things, people. You've got to understand, start looking at yourself from the perspective that God looks at you, that you are... He sees you as he sees his son. 
to Jesus' colored glasses, in other words. Not the second member of the Trinity, but somebody who is under his headship. You know, we get into the presence of God, you know, as we saw, and we have access to the Father, okay, through the Spirit and between because of his Son, because of our faith in him and our identification with him. So we enter into the Holy of Holies, okay? We're at the right hand of God. Paul just said that in Ephesians 2, 6, right? We're raised and seated with Christ. What are the implications of that? You're, you're in a great position, you know. I would rather be what I am and be a pastor, have that gift, than the President of the United States or the richest man in the world. They don't have anything compared to what I have. I'm in union with the one who's the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills and owns the world and created the world. What do I care about $10 billion somebody has? I'm not impressed by that. And then guys say, oh, we had $10 billion, a big deal. If he doesn't have a relationship with God, he just lost it. He gained the world and lost his soul. What a stupid investment that was that he made in his life, huh? You know, the best decision you could ever make is believe in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to grow to spiritual maturity because then there's, on top of the resurrection body, you can get rewards for faithful service and be an overcomer that John talks about in Revelation chapters two and three. So you want to be in this time of history. You couldn't ask for being at a better time in history. The sad thing is that, especially I see it in America, believers don't understand and do not understand the fact who they are and how wealthy they are spiritually and temporally, really, because you're going to rule the world and you're going to own everything with Christ, with his millennial reign. You know, we don't realize, we don't, we don't tap into those resources uh, by being uh, by applying God's word and also going into prayer with God, you have access to Him 24/7. So your circumstances should not dictate your happiness. Your your position in life should not dictate your happiness or your contentment or fulfillment in life. It's your union and identification with Christ, your fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how you define yourself. You're a child of God. You're creating the image of God. And you're a child of God, creating the image of Christ, and who's restored the fallen image of, uh, of God in us. And so this is incredible that you have this. And so I see too many people living a life of depression and worried about things and, and complaining and not experiencing the victory that is theirs now if they just look at themselves from God's perspective. God looks at you as not, you know, and when you face temptation to sin and or the temptation to be, feel bad for yourself, you know, that's the worst thing is because... It's all, you get your eyes on your wrong person. You get, you get your eyes on the Lord, okay? Stop getting your eyes on yourself and feeling sorry for yourself. And you got a, you got a bad deal. I'm in a bad marriage. I got a bad, I, nobody loves me. No, my kids don't come and see me, you know? Or I don't have a good job. I have no money. I'm, I got debt, you know? I, I, you can't, you got to stop thinking about that. Look at the reality. Look at Paul. Paul was writing this from, uh, from in chain to a Roman soldier. Yeah, he was under house arrest and he had access to p- people could come in. But really he had no freedom. And he had, and he was un, unjustly treated. He was not. He was arrested for uh, for an unjust reason and a lie, so a bad, false accusation against him. And it was probably like four, five years before he gets out. Okay, you see him complaining. You read Philippians. He's saying rejoice. He's telling us the rejoicing. He doesn't have his freedom. Look, open up your eyes, people. Spend spend some time, less time thinking about yourself and how bad you got it. Look at your relationship with God. See how good you got it. So in other words. We're like, you know, for people who are believers in apostasy and not paying attention to the relationship with God and cultivating that relationship because you get what you put into it, right? You get out of it what you put into it. If you don't put any effort in your relationship with God, 
No wonder you're not going to be on fire for God. You don't do anything in your relationship with God. You don't, he's done everything and you're sitting there doing nothing. So what happens is it's like having, uh, it's like somebody having $10 billion in the bank and they're always, they're, dri they're driving around in a Pinto from 1973 and they walk around in rags and, uh, you know, they eat at McDonald's all the time when they have $10 billion in the bank. That's what church age believers, I see the majority of church age believers that I've run over the years, not all of them, but a good portion of them, they, they, they live as such. That's crazy, right? But that's exactly what I see happening going on. How do I know that? Because I see, I see their lives. I see their, their, their fruit in their life, which is not much, you know? And they don't serve in a church and they, 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 they live in the world and they just, they, they're, they're rich spiritually. And, and will be for sure in the millennial reign, okay? But they, they, don't, they don't take advantage of what is theirs now. How very sad. So, the word for, uh, if you look at uh, in, uh, when it says it, in whom, at the beginning of Ephesians 2.22 in the Net Bible, in whom, the word whom there is the relative pronoun host, and it's referenced Jesus Christ, and it contains the figure of autonomy, people. This means that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is put for the church-age believer, appropriating by faith their union and identification with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. In other words, the Lord is put for experiencing fellowship with him as a result of appropriating by faith their union and identification with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. And this interpretation is supported by the fact, by the meaning of the verb sun oikodemeo, which is... Uh, which, like the verb oxo in Ephesians 2.21, speaks of the spiritual growth of the members of the body of Christ as a result of appropriating by faith their union identification with Christ. It's also supported by the present tense of the verb oxo, which, like the verb uh, uh, oxo in Ephesians 2.21, expresses a continual present state. In other words, the church-age believers grows up spiritually into Christ-likeness by experiencing fellowship with the Lord, and this is accomplished by appropriating by faith their union and identification with Christ, at, uh, at the and if you look at hold you you don't have to hold your place but look at I'll put it on the board for you. Look at Colossians chapter three. This is interesting. It's just like Romans six. Look at Colossians three one. On the board, if Paul says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, first class condition, and you have that's your identification with Christ and His resurrection, which guarantees you a resurrection body. He says, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, think, seeking those things. Keep thinking about the things above, not the things on the earth, your circumstances on the earth. Why? For you've died with Christ. Your identification with Christ is death, and your life is hidden with Christ. In God, you're raised and seated with Christ. Remember he said in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, he made us alive together with Christ, and in verse 6 he tells us how. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him. When Christ, who is our life, appears, and that's at the rapture, which is imminent, then you too, will be revealed in glory with him. Now stop. It says so. And the word is the inferential conjunction un. You could translate it therefore. This so, okay, is saying that what I'm about to say is an inference from what we just saw in the first four verses. In other words, because you're raised in, you die with Christ and you're raised in seed with Christ, this is what you need to do. Here's the, here's the implication. Put to death whatever in your nature belongs to the earth. And he identifies what he's talking about there. Sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So how do you do that? How do you put to death uh, your, the deeds of the body? Well, if you look at Romans 6, look at Romans 6 and look at verse 11. 
And this is how you do it. So you too, consider yourselves. See the word consider, that means you're supposed to think. That means you're supposed to think. Legizamai. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've died with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, and you're alive. And here's another thing. You get, here's people who like to live in the past and, and beat themselves up for this, this, their past lives, okay? If there's anybody who's going to beat himself up for his past life, is Paul. He persecuted the church. He was the top celebrity in Judaism, and nobody persecuted the church or was more zealous in doing so than Paul. That's why he calls himself the chief of sinners. And he didn't let his past keep him from serving the Lord Jesus. I see too many people in the body of Christ. They have no, I got no mother and I got no father. And so therefore, you know, it's, this is the reason why I make bad decisions in life. And you got people, stupid people around them, no, no, no uh, spiritual values or no, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, divine viewpoint from the word of God. Who say, oh yeah, and they make them feel bad. You know, yeah, it's because you had, your mother and your father were jerks or you, you didn't have a mother and father. It was because you had bad circumstances and nobody loved you when you were a kid is the reason why you make bad decisions. Like, that's stupid. First of all, my mother, she didn't have her father and mother. They were dead before she was five. She was orphaned, you know, and she was raised by her oldest sister and her and her uh, and his and her uh, husband. Youngest of nine kids, she was orphaned. Okay, that didn't wreck my mother's life. Too many times, we, you know, that's what psychologists and, and humanistic philosophy, which is psychology, does. That's right. They 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 they. It's always about they cause you to go within. That's the worst place to be. We're sinners. <laughs> you need to look at God, what he's done for you. Forget about your past. It's died with Christ. It was nailed to a cross. Forget about the fact that you were a prostitute or a drug addict or a liar or a Pharisee or whatever you were in the past. Who cares? You've died with Christ. Look at Paul's life. This is a great example of this. He lived it. I was a persecutor of the church. You think I didn't feel guilty at times? Yeah, he probably did. You know, he held the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen. Acts chapter 8, did he not? Yeah, he had arrested women and children who were in the body of Christ. Isn't that something? But that didn't stop. He says, I forget those things behind and I keep looking forward. Look at this. It says in Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 10. He says, this is Paul. I, he's appropriating by faith his union identification with Christ. Look what he says. This is his ambition in life. My aim is to know him. That's experientially. To experience the power of his resurrection meaning experience identification with Christ in his resurrection. But to do that, you have to experience your identification with Christ in his death. And to do that, you have to share in his sufferings, undeserved suffering, and to be like with him in his death. And so somehow, to attain to the resurrection of the dead, and don't tell me that's not the rapture. Why? The word attain there in the Greek text, it is, the word is kontentao, uh, which is actually in the active voice, the verb, which means the subject produces the action of the verb. The rapture, happens without our volition. We don't tell God, we don't rapture ourselves. The Lord does that. He gives us our resurrection body. So when he talks about the resurrection there, he talks about experiencing your identification with Christ and his resurrection. And Paul just told us how to do that. Consider yourself dead to sin nature and alive to God because you're raised and seated with Christ. Okay? Now we'll keep going. Look at it keeps going upon his past. Not that I've already attained this. You know, he's not resting on his own law, his previous his, uh, victories. Not that I have already attained this. That is, I have not already been perfected. But I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. He's still, he's a work in progress. Instead, I'm single-minded, forgetting the things that are behind. 
and reaching out for the things that are ahead. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, rewards at the payment seat. So this is fantastic stuff here, people, that we need to be mindful of. So, as we wrap up our study, the relative pronoun hosts, uh, and it's in Ephesians 2.11, where it says, uh, in home, what is it, back here, we'll go back to Colossians, I'm a little excited here. Uh, look at it, Colossians 2, Ephesians 2.22, in whom, it says, okay? Now, we see that, that the, um, the relative pronoun host, which who's have Jesus as its referent, is the object of the preposition N, which functions as a marker means. And therefore, this prepositional phrase at the very beginning of verse 22, translated in whom in your Bibles, indicates that it's by means of church-age believers experiencing fellowship with the triune God. And how you do that? By appropriating by faith the union identification with Him, that they are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. And then the very last prepositional phrase that ends the verse, which I said before, is uh, in the Spirit and panumity in the Greek. Uh, this particular word, panuma, Spirit, is of course, of course referring to the, the Holy Spirit. And this word, too, also contains the figure of matani, metonymy, which means that the person of the Spirit is put for the exercise of His divine omnipotence on behalf of these church-age believers when they experience fellowship with the Lord. And this is accomplished by appropriating by faith their union and identification with Him, which in turn appropriates the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, this post-justification faith enables the Spirit to accomplish this task of building these Gentile Christians into a dwelling place which belongs to the Father. And this word Spirit, panuma, it's also the object of the preposition and which functions as a marker means, which means that it marks this word as the means by which the action of the verb soon oikodomeo is accomplished. So therefore, this prepositional phrase which ends verse 22 in the chapter indicates the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit is the means by which the church-age believer is being built together with Jewish church-age believers into a dwelling place of God the Father. So as we wrap this study up, the contents of Ephesians 2, 11-22 should really deeply affect us Gentile Christians in the 21st century in the sense that it should not only prompt us to offer up thanksgiving to the Father for what He has accomplished for us through both the work of His Son and the Spirit, but also inspire us to worship Him. It should prompt us to offer thanksgiving to the Father for what He did for us at justification and through the baptism of the Spirit and what He's doing for us now through the Spirit. Psalm 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all of your wonders. And then lastly, Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. And as one last passage, if you look at Romans 12, 1, I love this. Therefore, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. How do you do that? Consider yourself dead to this nature and alive to God. Then he says, Do not be conformed to this present world, the standards of Satan's cosmic system, but be transformed by the Spirit's teaching in the Word of God, by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, well, pleasing, and perfect. So, I'll see you in three weeks, Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen or the Lord takes me out. <laughs> so, 
Have a good uh, break, and uh, I'll see you soon. Thank you for joining me. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be encouraging to your people, rebuke if necessary, instruction in righteousness, and uh, encouragement to go forward in your plan and not look back at the past and, and our failures and to keep uh, plugging away. So, Father, we just pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.